This season of Sincerely Human is sponsored by Riley Sway Foundation. Through community-focused programs, Riley Sway inspires teens to lead with empathy and kindness to build a better, kinder, more just world. From connecting student leaders to awarding grants for projects that amplify kindness, Riley Sway Foundation equips the next generation of leaders with the tools and resources they need to envision change and achieve it. Please stay tuned for Kindness Calling, our postscript segment featuring the remarkable teens from Riley Sway Foundation. Hey, before we begin, just a quick warning. This episode touches on some of the struggles that the LGBTQ community faces, and therefore it contains a few words that may be triggering. Listener discretion is advised. First person I remember getting killed was a young transgender woman named Dionne Webster, who was uh, killed up in Harlem while doing sex work. And then a few months later, somebody named Kiki Freeman, another transgender woman that I knew very well, was murdered. And Ali was so close to both of them and was just devastated by their murders and would go into the police precincts and sort of aggressively demand that the police investigate the murders. And for a black, non-binary youth walking into a police precinct wearing like thigh-high leather boots and a blonde ponytail wig with like a three-day growth of beard on their face, it just took remarkable courage. It took remarkable courage. Ali was somebody who was all about love. And not love as this kind of sentimental hallmark thing, but love as seeing profound value in other people that were devalued by society. When it came time to start the Ali Frenet Center, I really felt like Ali had personified and had embedded within their life uh, what I wanted the Ali Frenet Center to be about. You're listening to Sincerely Human, a podcast that tells stories of kindness in action from the lens of today's most inspiring humans. This is Camille. And this is Maverick. Welcome to the show. experienced it yourself, imagine for a second being disowned by your own family because of your gender identity. What if they went as far as to kick you out of your home? Unfortunately, this is the reality of millions of LGBTQ youth. It's estimated that as many as 40% of the 4.2 million homeless youth in the country identify as LGBTQ. This is a shocking statistic especially when considering that only 7% of the overall population in the U.S. come from the LGBTQ community. When left out in the streets, the services available to LGBTQ youth are scarce. They often continue to experience gender-based discrimination when trying to get a job. Some find themselves forced to engage in sex work to survive, becoming even more vulnerable to violence. Today, we're interviewing someone who's a pioneer, and fighting for the rights of the LGBTQ homeless youth. Carl Siciliano is the founder of the Ali Fournay Center, the largest program in the nation dedicated to meeting the needs of this population. 
Carl founded the center in honor of Ali Fournay. Ali was an LGBTQ homeless person who fought relentlessly to support and advocate for their community. Carl was born in the Bronx in New York City. Despite never experiencing homelessness, he feels he can identify with this community because of an experience he had as a child. I would have to say that perhaps the biggest defining thing for me of my childhood that certainly had the most kind of impact over who I am as an adult is my parents splitting when I was four years old and my mother really kind of moving away and not being involved in my life for many years after that. So I think that that experience as a small child of being abandoned by one's mother and not really understanding it and probably internalizing a message that one is maybe unworthy or unlovable. I think it kind of set a psychological framework for me to understand on a certain level uh, how awful it is for LGBT youth to be rejected by their families. Carl entered his teen years in the late 70s. And that was when I started becoming aware of myself as a gay man. You know, when I started having sexual desires, I guess. And it was a time before the internet. It was a time before the LGBTQ movement had really made it to suburban America. So I only heard messages of shamefulness uh, in my schoolyard. The most common insult that, that boys would hurl at each other was faggot. I remember there was a television show at the time called Soap, which uh, had a gay character. I think it was maybe the first television show portraying a gay person. It was Billy Crystal playing a gay person. I'm Jody. You're a homo? (laughs) Well, I... uh... The reason I ask is I've never seen one before. I remember my father wouldn't let us watch it because he thought it was just so dangerous and shameful to watch something with a homosexual. Growing up in such an environment wasn't easy for Carl. You know, when I was a teenager, I I probably shared a lot of the fears and a lot of the anxieties and a lot of the sense of isolation and separateness and distance that many young people in my generation would have gone through. There was more of a sense, I think, in suburban America that there was such a thing as gay people and lesbian people, but there was still very little understanding or acceptance, and it was very much framed as something that was dangerous and shameful and sinful. I would say that I was very anxious when I was a teenager. For me, it was more of an issue of just, you know, being aware that there was something inside of me that could make me radically unacceptable to my other friends and to my broader family, and fearing what that meant and and wishing it wasn't the case. Instead of dealing with his sexuality, Carl turned his attention to spirituality and religion. I don't think I'd ever been to a church or anything like that. But I had this profound experience when I was 15 that really reoriented my life. I started exploring different spiritual traditions, trying to kind of understand what I'd experienced. Uh, Initially, I was more attracted to Eastern religions like Hinduism and, and Buddhism. And I kind of saw, you know, being sexual as as opposed to the spiritual path that I was on. So I sort of pushed the sexual side of myself to the side. By the time Carl was 17, he had converted to Catholicism. And I would see a priest for spiritual direction. 
And I used to give them a hard time because I was bothered by the church's misogyny. I was like, you know, why won't they let women be priests? And I was bothered at the time that the Pope was being so strongly condemnatory of communist oppression in Eastern Europe, but was not being so condemnatory of like American aggression in Central America. And so the priest felt like I was too critical and he felt like I should focus more on helping people. And so he recommended that I start volunteering at a soup kitchen in South Norwalk, Connecticut. Carl was struck by the stark difference between his reality and that of homeless people at the soup kitchen. He wanted to continue helping this population. When Carl graduated from high school, he joined the Catholic Worker Movement. He moved to Washington, D.C., where he lived and volunteered at a homeless shelter. That just really set the tone for my life. Like, I was always so bothered and and perturbed and sort of horrified at the reality that in in this wealthy country of ours, that there are so many people in, in this kind of extreme destitution. And it always felt to me like very crucial that we should do something about it and that I personally should do something about it. A few years later, Carl moved back to New York City to join the Catholic worker movement there. And that was one of the first places where I started meeting openly gay people and and openly gay Catholics and people trying to figure out how to integrate their Catholicism with their sexuality. In 1994, Carl started working as the director of Safe Space, a center for homeless youth in Times Square. I was really shocked when I started working with homeless youth in in New York City. Uh, The overwhelming majority of them had nowhere to sleep at night. There was one shelter in town called Covenant House, and it was a a pretty violent and hostile place if you were an LGBTQ youth back then. So most of the young people were just too afraid to sleep there. And so they would be out on the streets at night or sleeping in crack houses or sleeping in subway cars. A great many of the LGBTQ youth survived through survival sex, you know, trading sex for money, sometimes trading sex for shelter. The transgender and the non-binary youth especially faced many, many obstacles trying to get services from social service organizations. The workers would be very hostile and and refuse to acknowledge their their trans identities and, and would refer to them by the wrong pronouns. And often the youth would run out into the streets crying, not even able to get the benefits they were entitled to. It was at Safe Space where Carl and Allie crossed paths. Allie was a non-binary homeless person and an advocate for the LGBTQ homeless youth. They presented as male during the day and changed their presentation to female at night when engaging in sex work. And Ali was a remarkable person. Um, A lot of the young people that I knew had been so hurt and abused that they built a lot of walls around themselves and, and had a hard time being vulnerable and open with those of us who were, were trying to protect them and care for them. And Ali had certainly been very badly abused. Ali was uh, kicked out of their home when they were about 12 years old and spent several years in and out of the foster care system where they faced uh, a lot of violence in the foster care group homes, um, anti-gay violence. But there was something remarkable about Ali. Ali had this warmth, this openness, this vulnerability, this 
kind of nakedness and showing caring and concern for the other homeless youth and for those of us uh, working with them that was very uh, moving and disarming. At Safe Space, young people like Ali were trained to do HIV prevention work in the streets. They provided information about safe sex for homeless LGBTQ youth who engaged in sex work. So we trained Ali to do that. And then even after Ali's internship with us ended, Ali would still come every day with this knapsack and fill it with hundreds and hundreds of condoms and and would, of their own accord, spend time out on the streets just uh, trying to protect the, the other homeless youth doing sex work. So I was really moved by that. Carl was also touched by Ali's attitude towards God. At that time, I was so angry at the Catholic Church's hostility towards LGBT people, towards the LGBT movement, their kind of obstruction of HIV prevention, like fighting against condom distribution. I felt very kind of estranged from my own spirituality at that time. And there was something about Ali. Ali had this kind of radical love for God. And we would put on these talent shows every year. And Ali would always close the show by singing a a gospel song, usually painfully out of key. And then afterwards, Ali would go into this kind of free form, kind of sanctified, catching the ghosts, preaching, I think, like inspired by the church that Ali grew up in. And and Ali would always do this thing about how it doesn't matter if Ali's, uh, he would say, I'm a man and wearing a a dress and a wig, but God loves me for who I am. And there was something about that that was just very inspiring to me and moving to me, like this ability to own one's faith, even in the face of rejection and hostility and persecution. Carl and Ali kept working to improve the lives of the homeless LGBTQ youth. But starting in the mid-90s, a new city administration set out to remove the homeless from Times Square. And they would do these things called sweeps, where suddenly, like, from every direction, from, like, multiple blocks at once, like, the police would pour into the neighborhood and just, you know, round up everybody doing uh, sex work and arrest them in large numbers. It kind of pushed the transgender and non-binary youth who would do sex work out of the neighborhood. And it pushed them out into neighborhoods where there was less of an understanding of of who a a transgender or non-binary young person was. And one after another, they started getting murdered in the streets. Among those murdered were two of Ali's friends. And Ali was just devastated by their murders, would go into the police precinct and sort of aggressively demand that the police investigate the murders. For a black, non-binary youth walking into a police precinct wearing like thigh-high leather boots and a blonde ponytail wig with like a three-day growth of beard on their face, it just took remarkable courage. It took remarkable courage. Um, Ali was really entering into kind of hostile enemy territory doing that. And more than anything else, it showed me the love that Ali had and the loyalty that Ali had to their friends. And that was very moving to me. Tragically, Ali would meet the same fate. In 1997, they were shot in Harlem at around 3 a.m. in the morning. 
Ali was only 22 years old. For me, that was just a profoundly devastating experience. Um, I had a lot of love for Ali. I had a lot of admiration for Ali. Ali had, you know, been at my drop-in center pretty much. You know, if Ali wasn't in jail, Ali was at my drop-in center pretty much all day long, every day for for three years. Uh, and I had sat at the dinner table uh, and having many meals with Ali and I had marched in gay pride parades with Ali and you know I had performed in talent shows with Ali and gone to Coney Island and, and ridden in the bumper cars with Ali uh, you know Ali was just a part of my daily life and was somebody that I loved and cared for very deeply and it took me a number of months to kind of even decide if I was going to be able to keep on working with homeless youth because I felt so hurt by Ali's loss that I sort of felt like I couldn't take it anymore. But over time, Carl decided to turn his grief into action. He formed the Ali Fernay Center in 2002. Ali was somebody who was all about love. And not love as this kind of sentimental hallmark thing, but love as seeing profound value in other people that were devalued by society Love in terms of, you know, when Ali would go out on the streets, Ali would often have like a bag lunch or something that Ali would have picked up for themselves. And, 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 you know, if Ali would see somebody who had gone hungry, Ali would give, you know, their food away. It was a kind of a radical love that, that drove Ali to go into those police precincts and demand justice for Ali's murdered transgender sisters. When it came time to start the Ali Frenet Center, you know, I, I really felt like Ali had personified and had embedded within their life uh, what I wanted the Ali Fernay Center to be about. The Ali Fernay Center became the first center for LGBTQ homeless youth in the country. It was sort of remarkable. We started in a church basement. We had six cots in this church basement. And uh, within a few weeks of opening, we were actually having to turn away about 100 youth every night. Like, I didn't even realize quite the extent of the need until, you know, I started offering the program and, and, and so many people would, you know, just kind of flock to us wanting help. Almost 20 years later, the center is now housing 250 young people every night. And besides their headquarters, they opened a 24-7 center in Harlem. They also have a mental health clinic, as well as housing, job training, and placement programs. We've grown to become by far the largest and most comprehensive organization in the United States and in the world dedicated to homeless LGBTQ youth. The work at the Ali Fernay Center is vital, especially at a time when LGBTQ people are more vulnerable to homelessness than any other youth. The fact that being LGBTQ just makes so many parents unable to love and accept their children is a terrible thing. But then there's another layer that I think is important to talk about, which is, you know, about 85 to 90 percent of the young people coming to the Ali Fernay Center are, are people of color, are people who are black and Latinx uh, and indigenous. And um, when youth have to have so many layers of oppression kind of layered onto who they are, it, you know, it just becomes harder and harder to survive and to thrive as a teenager. So when our youth talk to us about ways in which they, you know, have experienced violence or experienced harassment, you know, some of it is based on their sexual orientations and gender identities. But like a lot of our youth have experienced racist policing and have been criminalized in ways that, that disproportionately impact uh, youth of color. 
So, uh, you know, all of that really kind of combines to, to make the experiences of a lot of the young people that come to the Alley Frenet Center traumatic and, and painful and unfair. For Carl, the religious community has a role to play in solving this issue. I would say to members who are part of religious communities that are not accepting of LGBTQ people, I think it's really important to think about how that rejection is creating an environment where parents are not able to accept their children and their children end up getting placed in terrible, terrible harm. So I, I really think it's important to start talking about that in these religious communities, to talk to your pastor, to talk to your minister, to talk to, to people in your Bible studies or whatever about that and, and, and challenge people to, to think about whether uh, faith should be leading to children being harmed and, and left homeless in the streets. When addressing the needs of the LGBTQ homeless youth, Carl acts from a place of love. He is inspired by Ali's legacy. Throughout my life, the animating principle has been, how do you put love into practice? I think all of us as human beings want to be loved. Uh, I think all of us need to be loved. And I think all of us need to express love. If people are homeless and in the streets, you're not being loving if you're leaving them there. You know, if people are facing persecution and oppression, you're not being loving if you don't address that. As a queer person, it was really very painful for me to see all of these queer youth suffering so badly in the streets and seeing Ali's ability to embody love in practice was something that was very inspiring to me. If you want to donate or get involved with the Ali Fournay Center, you can head on to their website at alifournaycenter.org. Stay tuned for our postscript segment, Kindness Calling. In this edition of Kindness Calling, we're featuring Willella Solomon, an 11th grader at Lakeside High School in Seattle, Washington. When Willella was still in middle school, she attended a We Day gathering. Essentially, these are a series of large-scale youth empowerment events organized by We Charity. That's when I think I really want to start doing some type of community projects and volunteering. And I was talking to my mom one night and she was like, well, um, I don't know if you remember, but when we went to Ethiopia in 2011, one of the biggest things that stood out to you was just how much disparities there were and how much that, you know, I kind of took for granted here in the U.S. And, you know, after talking about that with her, I looked through a bunch of photos and I realized that I'm in this small bubble in my life here. I hadn't started realizing, you know, those who may not have what I've had. When Willella came to realize her privilege, she actively did something to spend it. I actually started creating this project with a friend in eighth grade to send medical gloves, 2,000 medical gloves, to a rural hospital in Ethiopia. And then after that experience, doing that organizing and fundraising for that, I got into Lakeside and just began hosting and fundraising for a bunch of small organizations that works with communities in Seattle and then also in the world. If you've been a longtime listener of Sincerely Human, you'd know that there is a common thread in a lot of the stories we've shared. 
and that is seeing the reality of what others, people who may or may not look like you and I, have to live through. It pushes you to step out of your comfort zone. And once you take that leap, there's a high chance you won't look back. I guess the biggest reason why they inspired me was because everybody came from a different background. Willilla's talking about other teens she met during a leadership retreat hosted by Riley's Way Foundation. It was just saying that, you know, everybody can come from different levels, so you don't have to have a full-on organization, and you can have a full-on organization and still come together and have discussions about empathy and kindness and how to start up something like that. I think that was inspiring, just that sense of openness and community and seeing how you may not have any leadership or volunteering experience and still be able to start up something amazing. When we decided to work on special segments with Riley's Way Foundation for a second year, we immediately knew we were going to come across stories of impact that the mainstream media or your favorite podcast won't necessarily cover. But what we're even more surprised by is how much these teens would fuel our own fire. I feel like kids my age and youth, we see the world in a different way. I think I'm not saying that adults or anybody older may think that the world is horrible or anything, but I do feel like we see everything in a kinder light. And because we may have not had as many experiences, and maybe we do, but it's just we're more prone to forgive and look at the brighter side of things. And I feel like that's an important quality, especially when doing community service or volunteering. So it doesn't feel like work. It's more like something you're happy to do and you just love it so much that you know you're making a difference in someone's life. That's it for Kindness Calling. Thanks again to our presenting sponsor, Riley's Way Foundation. On January 25th, Riley's Way Foundation opened its national initiative, the Call for Kindness competition for its third year. Teens from all around the country can submit their projects and ideas that are designed to make a difference and inspire kindness in their communities. Winners will be given $3,000 each to help implement their projects with their school or nonprofit partners. Deadline to submit entries is on April 7th. To learn more about the Call for Kindness and other life-changing programs at Riley's Way Foundation, please head on over to rileysway.org or callforkindness.org. Links are in our show notes. We'll be back next week with another story of kindness in action. But until then, please don't forget to share this episode with people in your community. We would really love it if you helped us spread the word. 